Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morally reprehensible. And I ask him this question, what were you thinking? Why did you do it? And I'll sit for a little while, and most often, after a long period of silence, the person will look back at me and say, very honestly, I don't know. And I think about that exchange that I have with people, and I realize that's a conversation that would only probably happen in this generation because it presumes a lot. When I ask somebody, why did you do it? What I'm revealing is the general understanding of our age that everything is driven by some causal natural factor. That the reason anybody does anything is because, oh, I didn't have any playmates when I was a kid or somebody beat me up in fourth grade or I'm poor, I got laid off. And and so we have all these societal or environmental factors that drive human behavior. And so we point to this or we point to that and say, that's why I did it. I did it because of, and quite often we will point the finger of blame at something that made me do it. Now, I don't mean to dismiss some of these things as contributing factors. If you're beaten down, if you're abused verbally or physically, it's going to have an impact on you for the rest of your life. If money is tight and you have mouths to feed, it's going to put a lot of pressure on you. So I don't mean to suggest that environmental factors have nothing to do with our behavior, but something that we are losing a grip on in our times is this idea that beyond and underneath all those external factors is the reality of something called evil. And I think that's why Sometimes we can't come up with an answer. We're looking for the convenient, justifiable excuse, that thing that says, well, who wouldn't have done what I did in my shoes? Anyone with a spouse this bad or with a a, a pocketbook or bottom line this low would do what I did. And we're looking for a reason, but the real reason underlying everything is that there is this thing called evil, which we pretty much ignore today. I mean, let me ask you, why is it that One very poor person will work three jobs just to make ends meet, and another will take a gun and violently mug someone and take what doesn't belong to them. Same external pressure. Why does one person react one way and another person the other way? And if you try to point only to the natural cause, you will fail to come up with a consistent explanation for human society. The one thing we can never afford to dismiss out of hand is the reality that evil is real and it exists. Evil is in me. Evil is in you. Evil is in the world all around us. And it is personified in the person of Satan who is God's enemy and is evil incarnate. It's not popular to talk about things like this because it makes us feel like we've suddenly time-warped back into a medieval church. The truth is, evil is very real. And evil is not just a theoretical reality that sits in the background because Satan is a person. And when I say person, I don't mean human being. I mean Satan is not just a force or an idea, but a being who personifies evil stands opposed to everything God stands for, and he is actively on the assault against you and me. 
That's the reality of our lives. So that it is right for us to say that this graphic illustration is a true depiction of what it's like to be alive if you're spiritually attentive. Now, I'm not a person who sees the devil behind every corner. I don't want to blame the devil for everything I do, but it would be an equal error to dismiss Satan and the reality of evil and just say, well, the only reason anybody does anything is because of economics or education or, or the health of a relationship. There are things underneath that that affect us more than we may want to admit. I think that's why push comes to shove, and someone says, what you have done is so far in excess of anything justifiable. And you know it in your heart. That's why when you try to voice the reason, you can't with a straight face do it. And the thing we have to acknowledge is, there is darkness. There's darkness in me, and in you, and all around the world. And there is darkness incarnate, pursuing us on a regular basis. I think that's why Paul, when he writes this, says, don't make the mistake of thinking that all of your struggles are against flesh and blood. My struggle, we say, is with this person I have to live with or this person I have to work for or the fact that I'm not happy with my job situation or my spouse's job situation, the fact that I got stuck at an early age with this darn kid and I didn't want that responsibility. And we look at all these struggles we have and we're naming and observing everything, but it's just on the surface and all those things are true. But what Paul's reminding us is there's also another level of the struggle that if you ignore it, it will devastate your life and you will not even know what happened. You will ask yourself, why is this so hard? And you won't come up with an intelligible reason, an answer to that question. Will you admit with me that living for God, living as a follower of Christ in this world, does not happen naturally and easily? Anybody want to join me in admitting that? Or am I the only one struggling? You guys are like, look at this weak Christian up there preaching to us. It's hard. It's hard to do life in a way that honors God. It's hard not to take shortcuts, not to just throw the dice and be irresponsible, but to actually be a good steward, a good manager, a faithful citizen, blah, blah, blah. blah. It is so hard. I know some sermons make it sound so easy, but that's not the truth. It is very difficult. And the reason it's difficult in part It's because we're not trying to do this in a neutral setting where everyone's leaving us alone. We're doing it against the grain of severe opposition, and half the time we don't even see that opposition coming. God's purpose to restore and redeem us is constantly under attack from his enemy who delights in breaking what God makes. You know, sometimes when my children were very little, I would see one would work all day building a tower with blocks and another would walk by and delight in knocking it down. And I just think, that's Satan (laughs) exemplified and illustrated for me and my children. Now, it's a pretty strong statement, but that's his heart is why would anyone want to break something beautiful that another person's made? And that, that adoration or obsession with destruction marks what evil really is. Evil is the desire to break the beautiful things which God is making. 
It is to undo the work of restoration and bring decay back into the picture. Now listen, a lot of people think Satan is God's equal but opposite. That, you know, it's like Rocky against Mr. T and God's like, you know, God's like, oh man, I hope I win this round. And Satan's like, this time I'm going to get you. Satan in his mind thinks he's God's equal and opposite, but nothing could be further from the truth. Satan cannot lift a finger, but with God's permission. So Satan is not stronger than God, but listen to me. He is way stronger than you. A test tube of holy water, a little crucifix, some garlic, whatever you think. You think you're going to wave that, hold your Bible in there and go, it's me versus Satan. Satan will kick your butt eight times before breakfast. He's got your number. He's got you dialed in. He knows you better than you know yourself, man. He knows where to aim that dart so that it finds the weak point in your armor. And if you want to go against Satan... If you want to be victorious in spiritual battle, you've got to begin by having the humility to admit you cannot go toe-to-toe with God's enemy by yourself. And so, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. That's the first step in spiritual battle, is to admit that you absolutely cannot go toe-to-toe with Satan on your own. It's not possible. You will lose, and some of you have already experienced that. You have done things to remove yourself from the power and strength of God, and your soul has been ravaged and devastated. So God says, be strong in my strength. And then he says, that's not not where where it ends. There is a practical component to the strength. He has provided for you a panoply of army, a full set of equipment to help you make it through the spiritual battle intact. Now, you've got to remember that when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he was in Rome under house arrest, literally connected by a chain to a Roman hoplite or, or armored infantryman. Okay? And so that's the guy that, that Paul basically is staring at every day. Every time he needs to go to the bathroom, he's like, dude, I got to go to the bathroom. The chain, he's pulling it. And I'm sure they're, they're not sitting right next to each other, but it's this constant reality. And I'll bet you one day, Paul's looking at this Roman soldier chained to him in house arrest, and he's thinking, that's pretty cool armor. That guy looks pretty bad. And as he's reflecting on it, he realized what a picture the soldier is of what we look like in the spiritual realm if we would appropriate to ourselves Everything which God has provided for victory. This is probably a good picture, except minus the spear. I couldn't find a picture. But in in actual open field warfare, they would have all had a spear and the sword. But the guy under house arrest wouldn't have needed a spear. Probably just a sword was all he had. So this full armor of God, which Paul is describing about spiritually, is exactly describing the soldier he had to look at 24-7 under house arrest. And what's interesting is as he presents these pieces of armor, he's presenting them in exactly the order that a soldier would have to put them on properly. And I've been making my way through a series of of novels uh, on medieval historical military fiction. I know that sounds really nerdy and boring, but it's been very exciting for me to read about the period between 800 and 1400 uh, in Europe. And and it's a little bit of English history. I'm, I'm a big buff of military history. 
And so it's been really interesting to read this. And he's got it exactly right that soldiers have been putting on armor in exactly this way, in exactly this order for centuries. Now, I've, I've read a number of sermons on this text And what I find is it's a very common temptation among preachers to overwork this allegory, this analogy, and talk about how every little piece of armor is exactly what a belt does. And I think it's a mistake to carry it too far, to ask the analogy to outperform what Paul intended. But I will say this. I think Paul chooses his words carefully, and there is something very poignant in the way that he attaches to each piece of this armor a certain spiritual significance so that if we understand it rightly, we will be well-equipped to thrive and to even be victorious in spiritual battle. Now, keep in mind, throughout all of this writing, Paul does not talk about attacking and being on the offensive. The main thing he says is, try your best to stand firm. That's That's what generals have been telling their soldiers for centuries. Never mind going and killing them. The first task of a soldier is to hold the line. Don't give up any ground. And when we are under such an onslaught, sometimes that's all we can manage in our spiritual faith journey is to hold the line and not give ground. Let's look at these pieces of armor. And I'm not going to go exhaustively over them. I want to share with you one key insight for each piece that I hope will help you. Because when you look at the armor God provides, it also reveals something about the strategy of the adversary. And so it says each one of these elements in the armor is meant to protect you from a very common strategy of the enemy to derail you in your faith journey. And the first thing he talks about is this belt of truth buckled around the waist. The belt was a centerpiece in ancient armor. It held up your skirt, and men fought in skirts. The more I think about that, it actually makes a lot of sense. A lot freer, you know, <laughs> ventilation, all that. So it's a good thing. And it held up your skirt. It's a good thing. You tucked your tunic into it, then the breastplate would be fastened by leather straps to that belt, and then the sword and the scabbard would be be strapped as well, buckled onto that belt. So the belt was the thing that kind of held it all together, and everything else touched it in some way. Now, he says that this belt is truth. And you have to ask the question, what truth is Paul referring to when he says the belt of truth? The first kind of no-brainer answer is it's got to be the word of God, But it's likely that that's not exactly per se what Paul had in mind because later he says that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So what truth is Paul referring to? And as as I really thought about it, studied on this, I think I've reached the conclusion that the truth he's referring to is the most universal general level of truth. It's personal honesty, internal truth in your innermost being. A better way to describe it, I believe, is it's the opposite of hypocrisy or duality. See, in, in the years of doing ministry, one thing I've run up against over and over is this double mindedness in the hearts of people who are failing in their spiritual journey. They're in crisis. A lot of bad things are happening. And I'll ask him, you know that that is not what you were meant for, right? Yes, I know. You know that this does not please God and he has a better plan for your life. Yes, I know. Then why are you doing it? Because I just want to anyway. And it's that kind of double-mindedness that says, well, I want God to be real, but just not that important. I want all the benefits of God, but I don't want a lot of heavy pressure on me. It's that spirit that we call double-mindedness. Either God is God or he's not. 
You can't have it both ways. And, and because we have a dishonest assessment of who God is, it ends up turning around to create distortion of truth about us. We see ourselves distortedly because we don't see God accurately. Truthfulness, honesty, has huge implications for how you experience life. And if you have a hard time being honest about your own motives, your own desires, your own agenda, it'll be very hard for you to win in spiritual battle. I believe that hypocrisy is the number one complaint of the watching world against Christians. Would you agree with that? That the reason God seems so powerless and unreal is because they look at our lives and (laughs) you guys are the visual aid to God's truth. If that's the case, if the church is the living illustration of the power of the gospel, no thank you, I already gave it the office. I don't want any of that. And that's why I think it is so important that we, on a regular basis, assess individually, but also with the accountability of others, how honest a person am I? How free of hypocrisy and double-mindedness am I? The truth is, it's got to start individually. You've got to do some reflection, but you're probably not the best person to gauge whether you're truly honest and truthful with yourself. But every one of us probably has at least one person on this planet we trust who knows us pretty well. I would invite you to ask that person, am I an honest person? Being open is not the same as being honest. You know, I've had so many people say, Pastor Dave, I just want people to tell me the truth. Just tell me what I look like. Tell me. And then you, you tell that person like, no, 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 no. You misunderstand me. You got me all wrong. I asked you to tell me the truth. Not that nonsense. Tell me the truth. And what I realize is the truth is whatever I say is true. But what about what God says? What about what others say? Don't make the mistake that having an open posture is the same as being honest. Like Jack Nicholson once said, some of us, you can't handle the truth. You say you want it, and then you get it, and it doesn't taste good. You go, no, thank you. You guys just don't know the whole story. It's very easy to dismiss people who tell you the truth. How honest are you? Let me give you another piece of this armor. I'm not going to give it to you. Paul already gave it to you. Let me tell you what he said. After you've got the belt on, you throw over your head the breastplate. And the breastplate was made out of leather, often um, brass, or if you really had some money, steel. And it was studded with animal bones and other hard substances so that it was this very, it's like the pads in a football uniform. I watch Elijah when he has his pads on playing football. All of a sudden, something happens when you've got all the gear on. When you have a helmet, see, at my age, I want to play tackle football so badly, but I'm so scared because bad, bad things will happen if I get hit. But when you have pads and helmets and all that, you feel invincible. You feel like you are bulletproof and impossible to hurt. And it breeds in you this confidence because, look, think about it. In the old days, you would walk into battle and there would be a big guy with a massive sharp sword swinging away trying to kill you and you've got to run into the middle of that. That's frightening. So for the soldier, a sense of confidence to engage the fight is absolutely key. And when you're padded and protected, you get this surge of assurance and confidence without which you cannot fight. Now, what works against our confidence? 
See, the breastplate protected the, the soldier's thorax, all the vital organs, so it protected you against a mortal wound. It wasn't perfectly impermeable, but, you know, a good sword blow, and you could survive it if you had a good breastplate. And so knowing that, you would run into battle, not that afraid of every little scrape and nick, because you're protected. And what Paul says is the breastplate we wear as Christians in spiritual battle is the breastplate of righteousness. You've got to be very careful how you understand that. What righteousness and whose righteousness gives us that confidence? Well, I know for sure it can't be mine. If the confidence I have in going into battle is the, on the basis of my own moral performance, good luck, Charlie. There's no way. I would be so insecure if in the midst of spiritual battle, what I said was, oh, yeah, well, I'm not so bad, you know. I did a lot of good stuff. I preached Sunday. I gave some money to poor people, and I went to Tuba City. And if you start saying that, yeah, but, but he could so easily go, yeah, but you really like porn. And you love money, and you love being angry at people who cut you off, and you this, and you that, and you lust, and you lie. Every time you want to stand in confidence on your own righteousness, it would be so easy for the enemy to... Basically pull back to her and go, let's talk about you. You want to talk about you? Let's talk about you. You walking around with that padded resume, so convinced you are the bee's knees. But I know who you really are. So let's talk about all of you. The full story of you. Not just the PR version you hold out to others or you rehearse in the mirror, but the real you when you are in the valley of your worst behavior. Because that's also you. So if that's all you have is I'm a better person than all of y'all. All right? I'm better than everyone here. If that's what you've got, you're going to get your butt kicked. He's going to hand it to you. And that's because your own righteousness cannot be the basis of real confidence in battle. There's just not enough of it. That would be like having a cardboard breastplate and be like, come on, play, bring it. I got me some cardboard. Not going to last very long. Let me tell you whose righteousness we're talking about. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's a fancy way of saying, you're not as righteous as you believe, but Jesus Christ is perfect, and God in mercy has credited to you that full righteousness. And here's a good illustration, I think, to understand emotionally how that affects us and produces confidence. The voice of the enemy, the accuser, that's what Satan is called in Scripture. The accuser loves to condemn you and instill fear and insecurity in you as a spiritual being. But God says, no, if you are hidden in the righteousness of Christ, then you will stand against condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he writes in Romans. Imagine that for years you lived as an undocumented alien in the United States. It was your little secret, and you went to all the PTA meetings, and you, you played along with everyone else, but you're always nervous, living under the tension that if the authorities discover you, you will lose everything you've built up, and you will be deported. That is the tension with which so many people in America live every day right now. They're driving like this, super slow, exactly the speed limit. And every time a police car pulls up behind them, they are sweating bullets. But imagine that one day, a blanket amnesty is granted, and you are given full rights of legal citizenship. 
Now, for weeks, maybe years afterwards, every time you saw someone in a uniform, you still get nervous because old habits die hard. But the reality is in that one instant, you have gone from always looking over your shoulder to realizing, oh, man, I'm free. I am legal. I am fully within the law. I can walk tall knowing that as I walk around this place, I am fully a citizen of this land. I have my rights protected. I am I am entitled to due process. And it begins to instill in you this growing confidence and security because all your life you live with just your own righteousness. And you veer to the left or the right and you're done. But now, every time that voice of the accuser wants to condemn you, you're awful. You're disgusting. You're a hypocrite. You're double-minded. You're unreliable. And you hear all those accusations and you say, you know what? You're not telling me anything I don't already know. I know that that's all true of me. Thank God that I don't have to stand before for God and answer entirely on the basis of my performance. But I am hidden in the righteousness of Christ. And that's like a breastplate over me. It produces confidence against that condemnation that always wants to derail me and sink me. There's another piece of the armor, the boots of the readiness of the gospel of peace. This is the one that most commentators and preachers have struggled with. It's a little bit awkward the way it's worded. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, if you hear the word gospel, the right preacher's answer that we're trained in seminaries, the gospel is for giving away. So immediately, most preachers I've heard on this passage say that this is about being ready at all times to give the gospel away. But I don't really see that here because Paul is teaching about armor that makes us victorious. And right now he's talking about defense, about equipment that helps us survive and prevail in this war. So I turned instead to an understanding of ancient military history and thought about of all the unimportant pieces, I I get, you know, like the belt, I get the breastplate, the helmet, all that's cool, the shield. Why does he mention shoes? Why is Paul Imelda Marcos mentioning the shoes? What's, the shoes are about the unsexiest part of a soldier's gear. But you'd be amazed in ancient warfare when you would have to trek hundreds of miles on foot over rough terrain and not on paved roads. Shoes could actually make the difference between victory and defeat. It's recorded that the great military victories of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were in large part attributed to the fact that their soldiers had better boots. See, here's the thing. Most of the soldiers in an ancient army would not be mounted cavalry. They would have to walk hundreds of miles over rocks and mud and everything. And after a while, these, we're not talking about red wing shoes that, that are handcrafted and made to last for 100 years. We're talking about something that, that maybe you kill the cow, you cut some leather, and you strapped it together. It's falling apart. You walk into the snow, you're getting frostbite. And when your feet are damaged... No matter where you want to go, no matter who's whipping you to go, if your feet are completely blistered and torn up, you're not going anywhere. Without good shoes, you are paralyzed, dead in the water, and it doesn't matter that everyone's going, move, you're stuck. And if this is a part of military armor, of equipment, then I think what it means is what keeps you from becoming bogged down and paralyzed? What keeps you on the move in this journey? What makes you able to get up in the morning and care to keep putting one foot in front of the other? I think for a lot of people, 
What keeps them going is the goodness or the badness of their circumstances. They say, today, what is the, what is the headline in my life? Is it good news or bad news? Have you ever woken up in the morning in a really good mood, great night of sleep, and you go, oh, crud, I forgot. I have that exam today. Or, shoot, I forgot. Still single. Dang it. <laughs> shoot, I forgot. I lost 100,000 bucks in the stock market yesterday. And just as you're waking up in a good mood, you read the headline of your own story and you train your mind and you're like, oh, I forgot. I'm not supposed to be happy because life is bad. It's filled with bad news. And I'm amazed as I talk to and listen to Christians, as I examine my own heart, how little power there is in the good news of the gospel to fight against the bad news of our personal headlines. And I've talked to so many Christians who when there's bad news on the personal headlines, the good news of the gospel seems a million miles away, and you say, do you know that on the worst day of your life, God loves you, and your eternity is secure? Do you know that in the worst day of your life, you're better off than everybody else who does not know Christ? That this is good news, that even in the, in the aftermath of your worst failure, you are accepted in Christ by God. Yeah, you're terrible. What you did yesterday is inexcusable, but God still loves you today because of Jesus. That is good news, and it's meant to keep your feet moving, not laid up in bed going, forget it, it's not worth it, there's no point. Why should I go on after I've been dumped? Why should I go on after I lost my job? Why should I go on after fill in the blank? And God's answer is, you will be like a soldier with torn up feet if you're not shod over your feet with the boots, the heavy-duty, safe boots of the gospel of peace. The good news of the gospel keeps you moving in this journey. If you find yourself bogged down because the power of your personal headline is greater than the power of the good news of the gospel, that's a real wake-up call for, for the foundation upon which your faith is built, isn't it? He also said, take up the shield of faith. I told you I'm reading these nerdy books about medieval military history. And the, the book that I'm working my way through right now is about the famous Battle of Agincourt during the Hundred Years' War. It occurred on October 25th, 1415, between England and France. And in that battle, King Henry led a force of 6,000 English soldiers against the force of about 30,000 French soldiers. Now, these English soldiers had just laid siege to another city. They were beaten up, hungry, worn out. Half of them had dysentery. And they were up against this massive, fresh French army that had not yet fought a battle. And they were yelling at him like, come on, bring it. We're going to beat you. And the crazy thing is they won. The English beat the French. Looking back over the long history, that's not that surprising. But, but you know, <laughs> um, here's why they won. The key difference maker between the English army and the French is that in the middle column of the English army were about a 1,000 men at arms, heavily armored infantry, knights, and trained soldiers. But they were facing at least 12,000 heavily armed and armored knights on horses. There's no way in that pitted battle, man on man, they would have won. But on the flanks, the English had 5,000 archers who were expert shots with a longbow. The French did not have hardly any archers at all. And from the flanks... These soldiers, these archers, could rain down a storm of around 60,000 arrows a minute. 
They fired close to a million arrows in the opening salvo of this battle. The sky was darkened with the arrows. These are bodkins with steel tips. They will pierce even the finest steel plate armor. Boom, right through. And if it didn't pierce you, the blow of that arrow would knock you down. And because of these archers, a force of 6,000 defeated an army of 30,000. The English lost maybe 112 men that day. The French lost around 10,000 before they surrendered. Here's the power of an archer. An archer from a great distance can spot the weakness in your defense, aim, and hit just that spot. It's like golf, but with death involved. Because you see, a guy with lots of armor, he's pretty protected, but once he lifts his shield and exposes that little weak side, and armor goes, that's, that's the spot right there, and he unleashes, and that arrow sails, and it finds its intended target, and bam, just like that, you're done. The most common place for the archers to strike was in the weak spot below the helmet and above the breastplate, that soft, fleshy part of the Adam's apple. And a lot, they found a lot of soldiers laying on the ground with arrow shafts sticking out of their neck. That's the deadliness of an archer, is it's not some indiscriminate hacking away. Ah! It's from a distance, just going, oh, I got you, boy. watch it now. Pow. And you don't even know, you're just running, running. Oh, gone. You don't even know where it came from. And you're like, how did this happen? When did I become like this? When did this happen? That's the nature of your adversary. That's why it says you need to be strong in the Lord's strength and stand firm because the devil comes at you with his schemes. He doesn't come at you, booga, 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 here comes the devil. You'd you be like, hey, get away. I can see that coming. What you don't always see coming is a sneak attack. The little gradual slide into brokenness and dysfunction. The little, little bit by which you acclimate to growing sin or disrepair in your life. And before you know it, the arrow done got you. It just, bam, pierced the one weak spot. And the thing is, not everybody has the same weak spot. You could offer me hard drugs all day long and not once would I be tempted by them. I just don't have that problem. But there are other weaknesses I have. And we're not just talking about temptation. If this is the shield of faith, what is the real attack? Shield of faith protects us against the arrows of doubt. Those places where we find it hard to believe God, not believe in God, believing in God, even the devils do that, right? It says, even the demons believe in me. The question is, do you believe me? When God says something, do you take his word of face value to be the truth? Can you accept that you are who God says you are? You have what God says you have. That when he speaks in scripture, that is the truth, not a truth, not an option. It is the only truth that matters. Can you accept that from him? Because every one of us will journey all our lives with doubt as a constant companion. I'm not free of doubt. You'll never be free of doubt. Doubt will always be with us. And each one of us has an area or two in our lives where we find it especially hard to believe God, to trust him, to have faith in him. For some of us, it's in the area of finances. We find it impossible to feel at peace unless the, the numbers all line up and we're flush with cash in the bank. For some of us, it's relationally. If some other human being is not in love with me, I don't know if I have any worth or joy. For some, it's our children. 
Our children become our idols. For others, what is it? Will you die with significance? Will you leave a legacy? You know, everybody's got that thing where you wonder, can I really believe God? And your enemy knows where doubts are most threatening in your life, where you're the most susceptible to unbelief. And he will shoot his arrows only at those weak spots. Why bother assailing you all day long in the places where you are invulnerable to doubt? But he will go after you. And I've often wondered, what would I do if I lost my family in a car wreck? If one day they were all gone, could I continue forward? Would I find God to be faithful? Would I find myself faithful? That's a scenario that severely tests my own resolve and faith. I'll get, at the end of the message, I'll give you a practical closing um, instruction that I think will help you how to apply all this. And finally, he says, take up the, the helmet of salvation. I'm not going to say a lot. By the way, that's a picture of the battle of Agincourt. Cool stuff. Last piece of armor, helmet of salvation. And I'm not going to say a lot about this. Um, just in the interest of time, I'll say the helmet of salvation is about hope and where we draw our hope and where we place it. I already mentioned some of us anchor everything in our hearts to the headlines in our earthly lives. I will decide if God is good by whether my life is good today. And there's two errors that are very common with respect to hope. One is to completely lose all hope and enter into despair. It's pointless to hope for anything. Nothing good ever happens. God never shows up. No one ever rescues me. So why hope at all? Have you ever felt like that? Every, every prayer falls on deaf ears. Every last shred of hoping and hoping ends in bad news. And you say, what's the point? That is one very common error with hope is to just give up on it altogether. The other error with, with respect to hope is to put it in the wrong things. To misplace my hope. To say, oh, if only I get married, then I will never be lonely again. <laughs> One more. <laughs> Come on, really. If I just get married, I'll be so satisfied. I'll never complain again. I'll have everything. I- yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. Try it. Everything will be settled once you get married. Oh, if- Only I would just have babies, my own kid, and then. (laughs) Yeah, you'll never be dissatisfied again. If only I finally build my dream house. Turn the key, open the door, put my stuff on the shelves, then I'll never desire anything else again. See, the two common errors with respect to hope are to see it fly out the window or to place it in things that cannot bear the weight of our hopes. And so what God says is, in the midst of all the trials of this earthly life and this spiritual journey, the only thing that can bear the weight of your greatest hopes is the promise of your eternal security because of Christ. That no matter what happens on this earth, you have a destiny that no one can take away from you. It is a promise that cannot be shaken or taken by anything that happens down here. It is a way of saying, even though I have hopes in this life, my ultimate hope 
the helmet that covers the one part of my body I can't afford to have wounded. That's the one wound in battle you don't recover from, is the head wound. This is the one ultimate hope I have, is that even if this story down here ends in horrible, mangled tragedy, I have an eternity awaiting me that cannot be shaken or taken by anyone. That is secure, and it is on that great promise that I will rest every hope I have because it can bear the weight of it. Nothing else can. The last piece is not armor, but you've heard it before. It is the one offensive weapon. But what Paul had in mind when he said the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is not simply the Bible. You know, we used to do sword drills, right? This is my sword, and we do, you know, That's cool. It's a good way to think about it. The Bible is your sword, but not in some talismanic way where it's like the Harry Potter wand. Hey, hey, before we go into the haunted house, let me just grab my Bible. Let Let me open my phone and just flip to the Bible app just to ward off the bad. You know, sometimes you get real superstitious about the Bible as if the book or the words themselves have power. But it is when we acknowledge the words to be of God where it's not just intellectual assent, but it is belief. It is understanding it, but then internalizing it, trusting it, literally falling backwards in the trust fall without kicking the leg out and saving myself. That's when God's word starts to become a true force in your life. The sword he had in mind is not the Thracian broadsword, the giant thing you swing like this, and you're likely to hit somebody because it's so heavy and it's so long, but you can't really be like this with a broadsword. The sword that most soldiers used and that every Roman soldier had strapped to his belt is the Roman gladius. It's a, it's a cut and thrust weapon for close quarters combat, and you would use it as much to parry other people's blows as you would to deal a death blow yourself. And that's very much the way in which I believe we're meant to interact with Scripture as part of the spiritual battle. Sometimes I I turn to Scripture because it has just the right word to parry this blow that is coming at me. And that's where, where it's required of us to be very sensitive to what's happening in me. When I sense, for example... Uh, in the process of doing something. We're in the middle of a transaction, uh, a, a business transaction, me and my wife, where I'm having to be very attentive to what's happening in me as we go through this. It's easy to crunch the numbers. All that's required for that is a calculator. But just because a spreadsheet makes sense doesn't mean it makes sense for me spiritually. And when I sense that something bad is happening, when this is becoming an idol, when it's taken up too much of my heart, my obsession, I go to God because I know where I'm weak. And I use the word of God to say, look, this world is not my home. I have a hope and a home somewhere else. Even the son of man had no place to rest his head. You you get the idea is you you try to parry the blows by being attentive to what's going on. If if this guy's slashing this way and you block this way, you're going to die. It's got to be a well-placed blow. It's the same way. Sometimes you can do damage to the enemy. By saying, oh yeah, well take this. And it just, it's fun. Feels good to kick the devil where the sun don't shine. Sometimes I walk away from a time with God feeling very much that what I've just done by wielding the word of God is I kicked him in the soft tissue. I gave him a good one. I was like, yeah, you're not getting that from us today. There's no way. 
wipe your shoes off and go on with your day. So let me close by asking you this question. Where does all this happen? Where do I put on this armor? It's so theoretical still at this point. I believe that where we put it on is each day, whether in the morning or the evening or in the middle of your lunch break, when we spend a little time apart with God. It's in those times that like a soldier who's stealing himself for battle, every night as they had their armor bearer helping them, as they're putting on the armor, there's two levels of preparation. There's the one in which actual protection is being strapped to his body, but the other is that with every piece, that familiar act of putting on the belt, of slipping on the breastplate, it's like a football player putting on his gear thinking, I'm getting ready, I'm getting ready, right? And then they all huddle and they do the whole, they jump. And, the, and all of that is meant to get me prepared for this. Knowing I can't just flail my arms and run into battle, you know, who's that, Leroy Jenkins? That, you know what I'm talking about in video games? Just run into the room, ah, and you're dead inside of five seconds, and you get your whole team killed. Is that the way we are? We've rushed into the midst of some of the most challenging spiritual situations in our lives, completely unarmored, unequipped. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have faced marital challenges, massive financial decisions, huge life-defining turns, and you've entered some of those totally unprepared in the spiritual realm. You have done exhaustive analysis in terms of money, energy, time, relationships, but what you probably haven't done sometimes is girded yourself by putting on the full armor of God. And if you do that, you will not walk out of that battle without some mortal wounds. So I believe that for many of us, daily quiet time sounds so lame and boring. It's such a dead time. Fine. I'll have my quiet time so that I could realign my karma. I know Christian karma doesn't exist, but let me tell you something. Many, many Christians are functional Hindus. Okay? That's bottom line is we act as if karma is real. I played tennis with guys who, after they lost, they would say, I didn't have quiet time today. <laughs> no, you suck at tennis. That's the problem, buddy. It has nothing to do with this karma of your quiet time. But is that the way we approach it? I got to log FaceTime so God gives me his favor. Like, hey, Lord, just make sure you saw me down here. I read the Bible today. I had Bible time today. If that's our attitude, it won't work. What we're doing in those times with God is getting sober about just what's really happening and how much we need his protection to make it. And so we are putting on this armor. We're asking ourselves, God, expose the hypocrisy in my life and fight it with real truth, honesty, single-mindedness. Where am I feeling accused, condemned, lied to? Let me fight that condemnation with the security that I am righteous and accepted and loved because of Jesus, my Savior. Where am I paralyzed, laid up in bed, no desire to move, to get up from this place? Paralyzed by defeat and pain and spiritual lethargy. Let me remember that the good news of the gospel is more powerful than the bad news of my personal headlines today. God wins, and because he wins, I win. That's good news. And today, the challenge is to get out of bed and stay on the move. Because the, the, the shoes of the gospel are firmly wrapped around your feet. Where do I have doubts? 
Where is it the hardest for me to take God at his word, to really believe what he says to me? Where is it difficult for me to trust? Because that's where the enemy is pointing his fiery arrows. And fiery arrows pierce, but they spread too. And in that quiet time, I'm examining where I am most vulnerable to doubt and mistrust. And I'm aiming the word of God there and saying, Lord, help me. This is such a struggle for me. But because I know it, I will move my shield to protect my exposed and vulnerable flank. Do you get that? When they're shooting arrows, you don't put your shield down here. You put it up here. You aim it where the threat's coming from. And you don't know to do that unless you get quiet and reflective. Finally, Lord, is there a sense in which I'm ready to give up all hope? or to place my hope inappropriately in something that could never justify that hope. Let me place my hope squarely in the promise of eternal security, which you gave me, that nothing in this earthly life can take away. In the midst of all of that, the weapon in your hand is the word of God wielded in belief and faith. That is what quiet time is. There's nothing quiet about it, is there? And I want to challenge each of you, starting today if need be, if you haven't had that time with him, get away. Put on your armor. Don't lay dead on the battlefield because you went out naked, flailing your arms at the enemy. Don't do that. That's a punk way to go out. If you're going to go out, at least go out fighting. Go out to the battlefield armed. You'll be amazed how different the experience will be. Let's pray together. Spiritual warfare has affected us, I'm sure of it, much more than we acknowledge. We seem to think in America today that mostly I'll just keep doing the right thing unless some challenge or external force makes me do the bad thing. But that's just not true. I can have no reason at all and I can still choose to do wicked things because evil is in me and evil is all over the world I live in. And evil is personified in an enemy who is relentless in his assault against me. That's the reality of our lives. And if you're feeling beat up today, check yourself in the mirror. Are you wearing any armor? Are you armed for this? Are you ready? And if not, change your ways. Make time. Get equipped. Life is battle. And our enemy is tireless. But God is great. He has promised you his strength. And he's delivered to you everything you need for victory. Take it now and put it on. I'm going to give you a minute just to pray on your own. And then I'll close for us. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, 
check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.